You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Brandon. Brandon's on holiday. He's he's taking off early. Brandon's he's- on holiday. How is it? Uh, he is indeed. Where are you? Adelaide? Adelaide, yeah. Yeah, all my extended family's in Adelaide, so um. I'm down here for, for Christmas and having a good time. I, To be honest, I even forgot that I we had to do the podcast this week. I can't, I remembered Brandon. I was just, I was doing the classic uh, Christmas mood. I was watching Love Actually last night on TV, oh <laughs> just after, after the cricket, and then I realized, hang on, what day is it? Because when you're on holidays, you just forget what day it is, yeah. don't you? <laughs> And I was like, oh, podcast tomorrow, got to get my stories together. So, but it was actually some, uh, it wasn't anything like super major. I, I, I found, I don't know if you found anything different, but um, there's still some interesting stuff. I was reading up about the James Webb Telescope. Uh, Monish Pabrai, oh, we got some interesting news about mm. Monish Pabrai as well, um, about his Alibaba position. Uh, so, we'll talk about that. I got I got a follow-up as well from the Elon Musk, Elizabeth Warren stuff. Oh, he actually went on a, like a two-hour podcast recently. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, were, they were talking to him about all this. So, I've got a follow-up on that whole that whole kerfuffle. So, mm. uh, there's actually, it actually turned out not too bad. There's, there's a bit of stuff to talk about this week. Yeah, there is. I've got a couple of kind of um, long concluding stories, something about um, Evergrande, a little bit about Evergrande. And yep. um, the Elizabeth Holmes trial is uh, reaching oh, a conclusion. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we've got a lot to talk about today. So, let's get straight into it. Today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite, which is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio. So, basically, you can bring in all of your trades and it will allow you to track all of the different types of gains that you experience when investing in the stock market. So, capital gains, dividends, Dividend. If you have dividend reinvestment plans, it will do all of those calculations for you. Currency gains, if you're buying shares internationally or you hold foreign currencies. And then you can also use it for when it comes to tax time. So, ShareSite generates up to 12 different reports that can be used at tax time to work out things such as capital gains, dividend income, and more. And at the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to sharesite.com forward slash young investors. That's site spelled S-I-G-H-T, sharesite.com forward slash young investors. So, use that link, sign up to a free plan, track up to 10 holdings for as long as you want. Uh, Or you can also use that link to sign up to a paid plan for more premium features. And using that link, you'll get four months off a yearly subscription. So, go check it out if you're interested. Yeah. And with that said, where do you want to, where should we start today? What's the... Um I could maybe do this follow-up on Elon Musk because we were talking about it so much last week. Um, Interesting stuff came out this week. There's a lot of little things that came out. So, Elon, uh, he said, you know how he was going to sell 10% of his Tesla position? Yes. Yeah, he is almost finished doing that. So, he's pretty much done. He's got like he said a couple more tranches to sell, a couple more slices, a couple more packages. (laughs) Uh, packets of stock. Uh, but yeah, uh, he also released a tweet uh, earlier this week saying, for those wondering, this was just out of the blue. This was not like a, a, <laughs> a reply to someone. This is just a tweet. <laughs> he just said, for those wondering, I will pay over $11 billion in taxes this year. Wow. How insane is that? That's a 
chunky number. Apparently, it's going to be the the highest uh, uh, tax payment by an individual ever in history, in US history. <laughs> I'm not surprised. So, That's crazy. Yeah. Um, pretty insane. Actually, I saw someone broke it down. It said, um, Elon Musk's 2021 tax bill equates to one- So, just what he's paid in 2021 equates to $1.5 million per day for every day he's been a US citizen. <laughs> How bonkers is that? Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. Yeah. It's like most of us won't even pay, what, one and a half million dollars of tax in our life. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Pay- yeah, it's like yeah. It, it's there's like two ways to look at tax. It's like as a percentage of income or a percentage of wealth. And then you're mm. looking at just the, the raw amount that someone is paying. And when you get to some of these people that obviously yeah. run massive businesses, um, it can be insane, especially when you have someone like Elon Musk who received a massive compensation plan in the form of what was yeah. it, stock options or stock awards, stock options, I think. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Then, um, yeah, you, you, you can get into the numbers and it's just, it's just astounding. Like $11 billion is an insane amount of yeah. money. Insane. Yeah. It's like if, if one person is ever in their life worth $11 billion, then it's like, holy smokes, yeah. that's enormous. But just to pay that in tax. <laughs> it's pretty, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, it's all about, you know, do you look at things at a relative scale or do you look at an absolute scale? Because yeah, if you look at, look at, if you look at things in the absolute terms, just the amount of tax he's paying is absolutely bonkers. But of course, that's not the way people see it. They like to they like like to look at things relative, or relative to your net worth and that sort of thing. But in terms of looking at tax from an absolute perspective or a relative perspective, I actually found a, a chart. I was doing a little mm. bit of digging during the week, and this this data is a little bit older, it's from 2018, but it's still fairly recent. And it actually divided up. So, it looked at the total, um, the total amount of tax, income taxes paid in the United States. Mm. And then it divvied it up into who, who's contributing, what income category is contributing most to the total uh, tax revenue. Right. So, it breaks it up into, say, the bottom 50%, then 50% to 25%, and then it goes all the way up in categories to the top 1%. How much of that total tax pool is each percentage of wealth kind of contributing? And uh, I don't know if you've already had a look at the chart in the Google Doc, but I was actually kind of astounded by this uh, by this these kind of numbers have you have you had a look already yeah i've had a look o- already yeah and it, i mean this mm. is something i've i've i'm quite interested in this whole topic so it's it's something i've looked at before but yeah i was also astounded when i when i discovered particularly in the us it's um what you're about to explain is is quite dramatic it's a little less dramatic in um australia um mm. but um yeah it's 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 crazy i remember we we covered the australian numbers uh on the podcast whenever they were hot off the press that wasn't that was like maybe earlier this year i think yes yeah probably. Um, yeah yeah, you're right it was a fairly even split you know the people that earned less the people that earned a moderate amount and the people that earned a high amount all contributed roughly the same percentage to the total tax pool but here what i'll just read you the numbers here so we've got the bottom 50 percent um of of uh of income, uh, they contribute 2.9% to the total tax collected in the United States. Right. So, if you're in the bottom 50% by income, you only 
collectively that group is only contributing 2.9% of the total tax pool. Then what about from 50% to 25%? Well, then it steps up 10%, 10 10.1% is is the percentage of the tax that they contribute. Then uh, 25% to 10%, there's 15.6% of the total tax pool is uh, is from that category of wealth Mm. uh, or income, I should say. 10% to 5%. Is a, this is so confusing? All these percentages, ten percent to five percent, they contribute eleven point one percent of the total tax. Then the five uh, percent to one percent category, they contribute twenty point two percent of the total tax pool. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is going already. <laughs> and then we get to the top one percent of income earners in the states. So just the top one percent of income earners, they generate forty point one percent of that income tax pool. Yeah. How crazy is that? Yeah, it is crazy. And I mean, that's, I mean, that is how the chart, you know, the exact percentages can differ, but that's how the chart should look, right? Like you should yeah, have- a progressive tax system. Yeah, you yeah. should have um, the, the tax burden being on people who make the most money. I think that's, exactly. that's how it yeah. works in most countries. <laughs> yeah. And it makes sense. You want to ease the tax burden on people who don't make a lot of money um, and have a redistributive um, effect where people who have huge amounts of excess wealth and excess income um, can kind of, some of that money can kind of come back down in social services and, and healthcare and that sort of thing. So mm. it makes sense, but it is astounding that, yeah, 40% is paid by 1%, which is, mm. um, which is the crazy. top 1%. Yeah, it's insane. It, it kind of, it do, this chart definitely put things in perspective because it's, it's just a classic kind of political narrative, isn't it? That, um, that politicians these days like to, they like to target the one percent and uh, and kind of make themselves, make their parties and their policies seem like they're they're all for you know the the middle class and usually the middle class just naturally hates the the ultra wealthy because they've got a lot more money than they do, but it is interesting to see that the top one percent are contributing forty percent. 40.1% of that total amount of tax gained. I mean, this was in 2018, but I imagine it wouldn't have changed all that much. And then, yeah, and then the set, and then the 5% to the 1% is the second largest category at 20.1%. But I think it's, uh, I, I don't actually see, I think like what you said just, just before, I think this is the way that it should be. Like, I'm kind of glad that the bottom 50% are only about 3% of that tax pool. Yeah. And then it kind of just rises up. But it, it does, it do, does kind of make me, Realize when you hear about people saying, "Oh, this tax system is broken." You know, um, the top, you know, the the highest income earners need to pay more tax. Well, they already do. They pay. They contribute at least twice as much than any other income category. So yeah, it's kind of kind of strange. It kind of puts things in perspective that actually they are doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to raising tax revenue. Yeah, I, I think I think the thing that bothers me is just the broad generalizations that are just clearly not true. Like things like the rich yeah. don't pay tax. Like that's clearly not true. Um, yeah. But obviously, you know, when you get into the nitty gritty, I mean, U.S. tax in particular is incredibly complex, and yeah. there are many instances, um, you know, where there, there are areas that are exploited by people who have a lot of money. So, it's not, you know, as if it's it's perfect and like, you know, look at this chart. It's, you know, the rich pay tax, everyone shut up. It's I think it's just the, the broad generalizations that people make like like Elizabeth Warren on, on Elon Musk saying, well, how about you pay tax? Well, it's like, that's just clearly not accurate at all. Um, yeah. He pays yeah. a lot of tax. <laughs> he paid the most amount of tax out of yeah, any exactly. US citizen ever. <laughs> and yeah, just to come full circle back on the Elon thing, um, 
uh, the, a follow-up to that Elizabeth Warren story specifically you were talking about last week. Yeah, uh, Elon this week went on a satire podcast called uh, The Babylon Bee, uh, which is kind of like I think they do they publish articles, satire articles, kind of like The Onion, I think, yep. um, right. if, if, you've, if you've heard of that. Yep. Yeah, um, where he said, if people- This is Elon talking now. If people could die by irony, Elizabeth Warren would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny. He noted that uh, that uh, you know Elizabeth Warren calls people like Elon freeloaders and 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 grifters that you know avoid tax, but it actually turns out that she pays almost no tax Uh-oh. herself. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, she actually actually pays basically no tax at all, um, and and of course her salary is paid for by the government. Which is paid for by the taxpayer. So, <laughs> Elon was just pointing out these inconvenient truths. <laughs> yeah. Which I found kind of funny. Um, I also, I saw one of her, someone posted one of her campaign ads that popped up on their Facebook feed recently. Mm. Um, and it was kind of, it was just so ironic. The whole ad was talking about, uh, you know, Elon being a freeloader. And then it had a button on the ad asking people to chip in $10 <laughs> for the cause. <laughs> Uh, dear oh dear it's just so it's funny it's like how can you not look at that ad and not see the irony in that (laughs) oh man yeah anyway it's um yeah i I find it a very fascinating topic it's extremely complex and then you know most of what you hear on the topic is extremely broad and and is just incorrect um so it's it's it is interesting to kind of look into the ways in which businesses and individuals use tax laws um, to their benefit and whether those things should exist. And even if there are ways that we can fix those things. I mean, I think we spoke about briefly last week how if you have a lot of assets, you can borrow against those assets. And if you borrow money, you're not paying you're not paying um, tax on the money that you've borrowed. So, people who have a lot of assets have this amazing ability to basically draw out money of their assets. Um, and I don't think there's an there's a obvious solution to to fixing that because of course you don't yeah. want people to be paying tax on loans. That doesn't make any sense generally. Um, mm. It's just this special situation where it can be used in order to um, fund your lifestyle if you have a lot of assets and not pay or reduce your tax bill. So I don't know. I find it interesting exploring things like that, and I don't think there are easy solutions to it. And I think nah, people who not. people who just yell that you know, um, well, the rich, should be this. Yeah the, yeah, the rich pay all the taxes, so everyone shut up. And also the people who yell that they don't pay enough tax. We need to raise taxes on the rich. It's just like, well, like, what is the actual solution? Like, what's, too much nuance. Exactly. But I do find it very fascinating, um, which is kind mm. of surprising. I mean, it's tax. I think I think as soon as yeah. a lot of people hear tax and they they just go to sleep. But um, I find it really interesting. I don't know why. Um, I think it's all all these topics that kind of don't have a, 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 a clear a, answer, an easy right or wrong. It's like if you yeah. shoot someone in the face, that's clearly a wrong thing to do. <laughs> really? <laughs> but when it, it comes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd be surprised, Hamish. I I, I I need to teach you a couple of things after this podcast, mate. But <laughs> but yeah, it's like this. There's, there's a lot of nuance. There's some areas where it works, some areas where it doesn't, and everybody's obviously every. Everyone's got an opinion on it too. So, yep. um, it does make for interesting kind of headlines and discussions and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Now, should we go from uh, should we go from one Elizabeth to another? <laughs> like that's, do you like that segue? Oh, that's beautiful. I did not catch that at all. So, um, props to you for, <laughs> for catching that. Let's talk about Elizabeth Holmes. 
and uh, <laughs> and her fraud trial, which is reaching a conclusion or probably has reached a conclusion by the time you're listening to this. Um, so we're kind of a little bit in the dark around it. But Holmes, of course, can I have the- a recap, please? <laughs> <laughs> can I have a recap on what's happened? I forgot. Oh yeah, I mean, this trial's been going on for months, which is um, you know it's, it's been a long trial. Um, but Elizabeth Holmes, of course, is the founder of Theranos, which is a company that developed a blood testing device that dramatically oh, right. reduced the cost and time involved in testing blood samples. It's a yep. little catch though. It was a complete fraud. Um, yeah, it didn't work. So, yeah, yeah it, it, did, it didn't work. Um, well, it's allegedly a complete fraud. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course, according to people familiar with the matter. Exactly, yeah, ex- exactly right. Um, but Holmes has been on trial for the past few months. Uh, she's on trial for, I believe, 11 counts of wire fraud. So, that's just money-related fraud and, and fraud is just deceiving people to get money. Um, and one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Um, okay. So, the state has uh, argued that uh, she intentionally defrauded investors by lying about what the technology could do. Uh, whereas the defense for Holmes uh, is arguing that this is a simple case of a failed business and that while right, she didn't yeah, deliver yeah. on her promises to investors, she didn't intentionally deceive them. And that's really like the cornerstone of this entire case is whether she knew that the product didn't work and then intentionally lied about it to patients and to uh, investors in order to get money and to continue selling um the product. So that's really what this 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 um, entire case has been about. Can you prove that she knew that she intentionally defrauded, or was it just a, a mistake? Did she actually think that the product could do the things that she claimed, and um, she was just mistaken, or she was lied to by yeah. other people and that sort of thing? So that's basically the entire case. It's been going on for for months. Um, I'm sure it's an incredibly complex case. I haven't been watching it super closely. I don't believe it was televised. So there's no like, you can't just watch the entire case like you can with some American cases. Um, but um, yeah, I, I would imagine it's incredibly complex trying to prove specific instances of fraud. I mean, there's 11 counts of fraud, yeah. right? And you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, a, a particular case of fraud happened between a particular investor, for example, or a particular patient Mm. or a particular business. So, um, incredibly complex. Um, As of recording this, uh, this is a pretty short story, by the way. It's just kind of a little bit of an update. But as of recording this, uh, we're two days into jury deliberations. So, um, it's already been going for, I think, 14 hours. They've been deliberating. Um, So, that's a long time, first of all. So, by the time you're listening to this, which is another couple of days past, it's very, very likely that um, a decision has been reached. Um, If it hasn't, that's... um, That'd be pretty crazy, I would think. That's that's quite a long time for them to be mm. deliberating. But um, it's a jury of eight men and four women who are deciding her fate. And they actually have to reach a unanimous decision. So, in fraud cases, um, I believe, I'm not 100% on this, but I believe it's up to the judge to decide whether they have to reach a unanimous decision or whether it can just be a majority. Um, oh, okay. But in this yep. case, it is. it has to be unanimous. So, that's why it's also taking... Um, a little bit longer. Right. Um, and right. if she is found guilty, she'll face up to 20 years in prison. Ouch. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, we're kind of in the dark at the moment. Um, I think it's very likely she's going <laughs> to, she's going to get a, a guilty verdict, but, mm. um, apparently the longer that they deliberate for, um, the more likely it's going to swing 
in uh, her favor. Her favor. So, right. if there's any doubt, yeah, it, it, exactly. So it'll, um, yeah, obviously there'll be they, there'll be some people on the jury that are that think she's not guilty, and that's why they haven't reached a decision yet. And and it's just whether um, they can convince those people to go unanimously guilty, or whether they go unanimously not guilty. And yeah. if they don't reach a unanimous decision, it'll be it'll be a mistrial. So that's also an option that um, can happen from this. So, right, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's where we're at. But uh, I would be I, I would just be incredibly surprised if they come back not guilty. Um, mm. I just think that I, I just there's just there's just so much. I just it would just be impossible to believe. I think that mm. she didn't know that it didn't work. Yeah, one thing. Yeah, one thing it does do though is it puts every other kind of founder ceo it gives them a little bit of a reminder (laughs) maybe just to not not promise the world if you potentially know that it's not going to if that's not a a possible outcome i guess Mm. that's the thing is is if yeah what you exactly i'm just kind of reiterating what you said i guess is that if there is a possibility that what she claimed was was true maybe they had some preliminary data or something that that you know this blood testing thing was going to work then you know maybe it is just a case of her being too much of a saleswoman um to her investors and and over kind of just yeah just kind of uh selling it too hard as opposed to being a fraud but yeah exactly if you're right if if she if she just went out and tried to almost con people into into giving her money then that's obviously that's not going to go well for her but it does Mm. it's certain i think it certainly will put i mean all CEOs, I think, to some extent, you have to find one that's very good, but all, all CEOs generally are salesmen, saleswomen yes. a little bit. Uh, there's obviously exceptions, you know, like Warren Buffett, but generally speaking, they are. So, I think this is this will kind of, if anything, it will make CEOs, uh, spokespeople, whatever, just be a little bit more a little bit more cautious in uh, in what they claim or what how they sell their company to investors, which I think, you know, generally that, that will be a good thing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, God, on the flip side of that, if she's found not guilty, I mean, it, this is probably, I mean, the case is one of the biggest like gross examples of, yeah. of what a company should not do. Like regardless of yeah. what the outcome is, she should have known is like the the position like if she didn't know yeah, yeah. she should have known she should have before yeah. she the company got to the size that it did and and where i think it, they were using it in the military so that you know they were getting false results for blood testing in like the military and in hospitals yeah. and that is like it's that's like that's the pinnacle of of what you know what you don't want to happen from a business perspective so mm. you know if if she gets a non not guilty verdict it's kind of like it opens the door for people to use that as precedent um in 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 future trials around this so um yeah i think it's a huge case a huge milestone case i'm kind of disappointed that it wasn't televised i really enjoy watching televised um trials there was a there was a carl rittenhouse Uh, trial defense trial a few weeks ago and um i just enjoyed i was just watching like raw testimony from that that for for like hours yeah i find it so fascinating i don't know why but it's um yeah i wish they had um i wish they televised it because i would have you'll have to wait you'll have to wait for the netflix special yeah exactly so yeah i'll have to (laughs) Don't worry, that that's definitely coming. <laughs> yeah, you can probably hear my. I can't. Uh, I I can't not see 
you know, Netflix picking this one up. <laughs> yeah, no, this, the, yeah, this is, um, yeah, there's definitely a few things coming out from this for sure. Yeah, but, definitely. Um, yeah, there'll be some sort of original series. Yeah. <laughs> All right, very cool. Uh, so, I guess by the time this goes out, um, people will probably just be able to simply Google it and we'll probably get the exact answer. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I, I would presume so. I'm not sure if they, I think sometimes they don't deliberate over the weekend. So, uh, okay. it's, it's, I guess it's possible that they don't reach a, reach a decision yet and that yeah. they are going to come back. They're going to come back on Monday. Um, but I, I, we're not lawyers. We don't know. I don't know, <laughs> but, um, even two days is, a, is, is quite a long time. Um, typically. Yeah. So, um, we will see. Cool. All right. You want to talk about Monish Pabrai for a bit? Monish Pabrai. You want to talk about Monish Pabrai? I didn't do this story. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. We we want to talk about Monish oh. Pabrai. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm just going to thrust all of this research that I've done. Hamish, can you now can you now take us through it? Yeah, cheers, mate. <laughs> I'll just sit back and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll watch. I'll watch you struggle through this. <laughs> no. um, yeah, anyway, so yeah, yeah. we uh, we we knew that uh, from Q3. We talked about this at the time. Monish Pabrai, he sold out of his. Well, he didn't sell out. He sold seventy eight percent of his Alibaba stock. Mm. And it was very confusing because his very good friend Guy Spear uh, is still holding on to his Alibaba position. Charlie Munger, who is his idol, uh, continued to buy Alibaba stock. And uh, and then, yeah, Monish came out and he started selling. And at the time, this was just- <laughs> we, we didn't know what was going on. This was mm. definitely against the grain. Um, but then, you know, I, I made a video on this. I was talking to Investing with Tom as well, who I think is invested in Alibaba. And we're talking, ah, there's, there's probably some reasons why. You know, we were talking about how uh, maybe he might have been tax loss harvesting. Uh, maybe there was a big withdrawal from his fund. He had to sell down some of his positions. Maybe he switched and he sold Baba, which is the New York Stock Exchange uh, listed uh, version of Alibaba. Maybe he bought the Hong Kong version. There was just mm. a couple of different reasons. Maybe he was wanting to buy something else. And it turns out there are two reasons behind this. And I actually picked it for once in my life. I actually got it right, Hamish. So, firstly, the the, the first reason that he said, uh, and by the way, this is from a an interview that he did um, with. Oh no, I can't remember the name of the channel. Monish Pabrai. I want to give them props because they scored a fantastic amount of time with oh everything money, of course, everything money. So they are just YouTubers, kind of like uh, like like we are, Hamish, mm. and they actually landed a full interview with Monish Pabrai, which I wow. think is absolutely amazing. Like props to you, to those guys because that that is absolutely amazing. Um, but anyway, so they were sitting him down and they were having a chat. What's going on with this Alibaba? Why'd you sell it? And he actually opened up and he talked about it. So, the number one reason why he sold was for the tax loss harvesting. Right. Um, so, he was down substantially from his original buy uh, buy point. And so, he looked, he saw that loss and the rules in America are that you're allowed to tax loss harvest as long as there's a 30-day window in between the sell and the new buy. If you wanted to buy back into that business, it has to be after 30 days after you sold. Mm -hmm. um, so, he- he did harvest that loss for that loss for his tax, but he said uh, he is not going to buy back into Alibaba because mm. he doesn't need to. And this is where somehow I actually managed to pick it: <laughs> is that he 
he harvested that loss and he put all that money into Process, uh, which is um, the South African uh, spin-off of NASPERS, which is known just holding a, a, a massive chunk. I can't, I can't remember, like 20 or 30% of Tencent. Hmm. Um, so, he he sold Alibaba and he put all that money into, uh, into Tencent. Wow. That's, there you go. That's crazy. Yeah, you called it. Good job. I, I actually did. I'm surprised. I mean, that was, yeah, I, it was, I said in the video, like, I, I don't know if this is right or not, but I think this is probably right. And yeah, it always feels good when you're right. Yeah. I mean, he was talking, he, yeah, what it was, there was a, there was a recent Q and A interview, I think that he did that he was t- starting to talk really highly of, of Tencent and that kind of clued, yes. that kind of clued you into the idea that, mm. um, that maybe he was, uh, he was uh, switching out his Alibaba position for, for Tencent. Yeah. And he was talking about, you know, I think he got asked something. He was like, oh, don't you, you know, don't you feel like you've, you've lost? You know, you, you sold Alibaba at a big loss and then you bought in Tencent. He said, no, actually, because he doesn't feel that way because as Alibaba has been falling- also, you know, over, over the past year or so, uh, Tencent or, or Process has also been falling ab- about the same. So, for him, mm. he wanted to buy Tencent. He actually says he thinks Tencent is a better business than Alibaba. So, for him, he was looking at this loss. He wanted to buy Process anyway. So, he just went ahead and locked in the loss to buy Process. He doesn't feel as though he's made a huge loss because if he was invested in Process, he would have been down as well. Right. But then then he's saying, well, if you think about it like that, then I'm in fact winning because now I just have this this free way of minimizing my tax bill. Yeah. <laughs> so... So yeah, there you go. So he's he's uh, he's sold out of Alibaba, and he doesn't think he'll buy back in. It's not that he doesn't think it's a great business; he still does think it's a good business, and he says as much in, in this interview. But um, for him, he just uh, he he wanted to buy Tencent, and he actually said in hindsight he wanted to he should have been more aggressive in buying uh, this process. He should have sold. He should have locked in more losses, sold more of his other positions just to be able to buy into into Tencent, which I which I think was interesting. Um, and so that was really the the big news that that kind of perked my ears up. And then mm. the rest of the video, he kind of goes on to talk about, um, you know, why he likes Tencent over, say, Alibaba or over any other business. Because I think that's his literally his, his favorite stock right now is Tencent. Mm. He he really loves it. And I think we've spoken about this previously, so I won't harp on about it too much. But for him, it's he kind of categorizes. There's two parts of Tencent's business. There's like the software engineers, and then there's the digital warrant. Warren Buffett's. So, he essentially, uh, the software engineers just get directed wherever they need to be. So, at, you know, at the moment, they're pointed at chat and video games and that's what they work on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this part of their business, Monish says, compounds at about 60% annually. Wow. And then, you know, so, that the, he- the management tries to give as much money, obviously, to the to the software part of the business. And then when they can't, when that software business can't take any more money, then he turns around to these digital Warren Buffetts that make investments in in technology companies and, and growing, yeah, growing tech, that sort of thing. Mm. And then that side of the business makes about 30% returns. Wow. Um, yeah, which is just ridiculous. I, I actually haven't gone in yet and actually done those numbers. But of course, I trust Monish. He's, he's a much smarter investor than I am. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, he, he was, um, yeah, he was talking about in his eyes, there are only two businesses in the world that really allocate capital very well. 
And he was saying that one of them is Tencent and the other one is Amazon. But he actually thinks that in his eyes, Tencent is a better capital allocator because they they just put their money towards, you know, um, scalable software, high, you know, very high margin projects. Mm. And then if they can't, if they can't get good returns, then they just make investments instead. Uh, they give the money to this series of digital Warren Buffetts who, who are just able to invest it. So, I guess, again, high margin. <laughs> um, but yeah, he was, to- he was talking about, um, if you look at Amazon, they, they, their their business strategy is a little bit different. They're more of a holistic approach with their e-commerce, you know, but that, that being a holistic approach to e-commerce, it also means they spend a lot of their capital uh, in lower margin parts of the process. Yeah. Like, for instance, the warehousing and, and the delivery or the f- delivery drivers and the vans and that sort of stuff, um, which gives them great control over the experience and it helps them improve the customer experience. But at the same time, it doesn't give them quite as high returns as what they could get. Whereas a business like uh, Tencent, it's just all, they're just putting money towards software engineers and they can just do whatever. If, you know, if the video game business dies out, they can make more social media apps or vice versa. It's like they were saying, Monish was saying that they were working hard on making video games for China. And obviously, the Chinese government's cracking down on video games mm. in China. So, instead of being like, ah, oh, crap, we're finished, they just take all the engineering talent say, okay, we're now no longer making games for China. We're making games for the international market. So, mm. let's go. And then they're like, all right, we'll just uh, tweak our business, uh, restructure the engineers and off we go. So, yeah, that's the kind of business you would want, um, you know, if, it, if it's a Chinese business that, you know, has these added risks of that the government could come in and, and impose these restrictions on certain areas like video games, for example, like you just mentioned. Mm. So, that's the kind of business that you would want. Flexibility. One that can, yeah, one that can just pivot away um, into some other kind of software, an area that may have less regulation, for example. And Exactly. And yeah, um, yeah that's an interesting, interesting perspective that I, I hadn't thought of. Yeah. Tencent's not a, again, I mean, look, for me personally, I'm not, Tencent, Alibaba, they're obviously, I think, great businesses, but it's just, it's, you know, same kind of principles apply, I think, for, yeah. for me in terms of uncertainty. But um, yeah, very, very interesting to, to see um, to see him make that move. I'll have to, I, I haven't, yeah. I've looked into Alibaba more than Tencent, so maybe I can. Uh, yeah, I. I speak as though I know what I'm talking about with Tencent, but I, I'm really just relaying what Monish is saying. Um, yep. I personally haven't done the haven't done the digging yet. Uh, what he what he says makes sense, and you know you can look at you know some of the ba- just basic financials, and you okay, yeah, this makes sense. But yeah, I haven't actually gone and and taken the time to actually understand it myself. Mm. Um, but yeah, very very interesting, and uh, you know he's a bit, he's an investor that I definitely look up to, so I definitely believe what he says. He doesn't just say things just to try and, you know, float his boat or pump his stock or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Mm. But uh, there we go. We have a conclusion on that story. That is why Monish Pabrai sold Alibaba, a bit of tax loss harvesting and also to transfer that money over into process. Mm. And from- uh, Uh, Which- Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you go. All all I was going to say was from one well-managed business to one- very mismanaged business. <laughs> segway, segway, segway. <laughs> We're strong on the segways today. Yeah, I was trying my best to to figure out a way to get to get to this I Evergrande story. Evergrande. <laughs> we we haven't spoken about them since uh, s- s- for a couple of weeks, but they um they defaulted. They um 
Really? They went into default. So, uh, Evergrande- So, are, are, they, are they cooked? Is there some secret escape road? I, I don't know. I guess you're about to tell us. <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm about to jump right into it. Um, so let's just jump into let's it. Let's get straight into it. <laughs> um, so, Evergrande, of course, was the- or is the world's most indebted property developer- um, they had uh, or have still $300 billion worth of liabilities. And earlier this month, they they finally defaulted. So, we'd, we'd spoken about Evergrande a number of times on the podcast. Um, and that's because over the past few months, they've been scrambling to find cash to make various interest payments. So, um, you know, every for a while, we were talking about, um, will they make this payment? And then the next week would roll around and they're like, yes, they just made the payment. Um, and yeah. that was kind of the story week after week um, during October and November and of course earlier in the year as well. Um, and each time they kind of just barely got the money in time. They had these, um, all of these kind of payments have 30 day grace periods. So, they yeah. would miss these payments and then they would start this 30 day timer where if they don't make the payment in that period, um, they will default. Um, but they would always be making the payment on like day 29 or day 28 or something like that. So, they were cutting it fine, weren't they? They were really, really waiting to the last minute to make the, some of these payments. And, and these payments were, you know, relatively small. I mean, 80 million, 120 million, 40 million. And that's, you know, relative to, you know, they've taken on 300 billion. Um, so, you know, these are tiny amounts of money mm. um, that they, they couldn't kind of scrape together. I think Patrick Boyle, who has a YouTube channel and has done an amazing breakdown of this. Um, he's very well. He, he did an analogy to the average American who has a, a certain amount of debt, um, the, the average amount of debt. And he said the equivalent of, of Evergrande trying to find like 80 million, 120 million was like the average American trying to scrape together. I think it was $12 to, to, to really? cover their interest payments on. I think the average American has like 50,000, I want to say, in household debt or something like that. So, that's how you can kind of think of it. As It would be as if you had 50,000 in debt and you were like looking around like under the sofa for, t- for $12. Wow. <laughs> just, to, uh, just to make the payment, which is- um, and that was always the thing we knew about Evergrande is that, yeah, with the $300 billion of liabilities and not being able to take on fresh debt, it was just, um, it, we were talking about, oh, will they make this bond payment? Will they make that that interest payment there? But even if they did scrape through, there was still, it was just like, it, it wasn't going to stop. It was just going to keep, this is keep, just keep happening and happening and happening for years to come. And if they're already struggling at this point, then, you know, in a year's time or in two years time, when the same thing is happening, Mm. (laughs) that was really the thing which made us kind of feel, well, at least made me kind of feel, well, this is, this is really not looking good. Yeah. As soon as the spotlight went on Evergrande, probably earlier this year, um, everyone, anyone who was kind of an expert in this field just reached the conclusion that it was inevitable that they would default. It was just a matter of when. It was like, is it going to be this month? Is it going to be in six months? It's going to be in two Mm. years, but they will default. They're they're going to not be able to make those payments. So, anyway, all of that ended in in December. So, a couple of weeks ago, um, Evergrande announced that they were likely to struggle to meet their coming financial obligations. So, they basically made a press release saying that um, they're going to go into default. Um, Interestingly, uh, immediately after this, Evergrande's chairman was summoned to a meeting with state officials. So, the government basically said, hey, come here, come have a meeting with us. 
After that meeting, uh, the company made another announcement uh, and that announcement was that the problems in Evergrande had stemmed from mismanagement and that the defaults would not have ripple effects across the Chinese economy. So it was basically a coordinated um, statement between right. the, the chairman of Evergrande and the government basically saying, hey, well, I mean, we don't know this for sure, but it's it's pretty clear that they said you need to say this. Um, uh and uh, from there, they also set up, Evergrande set up a risk management committee, um, which was designed to engage with creditors and restructure the company. So they set up this committee and said, hey, we're going to start to restructure the business, um, see how we can sell some assets, um, make new deals with creditors and, and get as many people paid as possible. And uh, most interestingly, on this committee, there's only two executives from Evergrande, but there's four representatives from state-run entities, Um, (laughs) which in other words, uh, essentially means that Evergrande's executives no longer have control of the company. So, they have have this six-seat committee, four of those seats are controlled by essentially state-run entities. uh, representatives, uh, entity representatives. Right. So the Chinese government is now ship, uh, steering the ship <laughs> through this restructuring. All those in favour? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Evergrande can't win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Like, so, all right, I guess we're doing that. <laughs> yeah. And as I mentioned, I'll, I'm getting a lot of this from Patrick Boyle. He did a great breakdown over a number of videos um, about the the ongoing story around Evergrande. So I'd, I'd highly recommend you check out um his uh, his channel. Um, he spoke about that this is, of course, the largest default in China's history. Um, but there has been a couple of other defaults over the past few years that you can kind of look to to see well, what should we expect to happen. Um, right. But with that said, I think China only introduced bankruptcy law in 2007. And since then, there's only been about 100 companies in China that have even gone through bankruptcy proceedings. So, this is very much uncharted territory. This is, you know, this is... This is, we don't really have a whole lot of precedent as to what the government will do. I see. But yeah. with the last couple of years, um, with some large defaults, there was one that was about $60 billion, um, the Chinese government has been breaking up those companies and then wiping out shareholder equity. So, taking control of those businesses. Um, and in Evergrande's case, that would mean, of course, shareholders would um, no longer be shareholders and the founder who owns a significant chunk of the company would be completely wiped out. He would no longer own um, the company. Uh, so, it's very likely that Evergrande will be taken over by the state and that it's unfinished uh, development projects will be completed by state-run developers. So, there's a number of state-run businesses in China, a lot of state-run businesses. So, um, within that, there's a lot of state-run developers that will likely be taking on the projects that are not finished. I think there was, I can't remember the exact number. It was a crazy amount of developments, 1.2 million residencies or something that (laughs) are unfinished um, that uh, will need to be taken over. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a developing story at the moment. I think the big, we spoke about this last time, but the big kind of word around this situation is contagion. <laughs> will there, will this spread into other property developers and then will it actually spread, um, further into the Chinese economy, into other areas? And then beyond that, you know, will it spread globally? Will, will this cause a, a global collapse? Like the, the, the housing market collapse in the US caused a global financial crisis. So, um, that's kind of the, the big question mark at the moment. And, um, 
the biggest concern here, yeah, as I said, so the biggest concern here is kind of how widespread this will go. Um, there's other property developers that have been going into default. So, Casia Property, um, I think they're near default. I don't think they're actually in default yet, but um, they're a large property developer in China. But what I found kind of most interesting was, and Patrick Boyle spoke about this in his video, was one of the other big concerns around um, Evergrande's private loans and these kind of uh, shadow creditors that they had, which I hadn't really heard right. much about at all. Um, so, essentially, just to kind of rehash things. So, last year, the Chinese government changed um, regulations around these, these property developers taking on new debt and limitations yeah. on how much debt they could take on. Um, and the result of that was that Evergrande couldn't get new debt to pay off their old debt like they had been for so long. And that's kind of what started this entire catastrophe. Yeah, that's why this is a problem. Exactly. But what they actually did after that law went through was they started getting doing deals with these shadow creditors. Um, so, instead of just... So, they have kind of debt from secured creditors, which are like Chinese banks, for example. They have unsecured yep. bonds, which are domestic and international, where they don't have claims on assets. Um, but then they got even more desperate and they started taking on loans from local businesses. So, things like hotels, pharmaceutical businesses... And the reason we know about this is because it, it comes up in some of the lawsuits that are going on at the moment, um, where right. some of these businesses are, are making claims on on some of the money they lent to Evergrande. And uh, the the difficulty with or the concern with this particular uh, problem is that we don't know how, how much of this type of debt Evergrande has. So, we don't know mm. if this is a really big thing where they have a lot of debt from businesses in different industries because if they do and they can't make those payments, which obviously they can't make those payments, um, then this default could cause ripple effects that go outside of the property development industry and into industries like the hotel industry where if there's a lot of hotels that have loaned a lot of money, they can't get that money back, um, then they might go into default. Um, and then maybe they owe money to, to other people and they go into default. And this is, I think, one of the bigger concerns since we don't know how much of this type of debt they have. And we ha we can't, we, it, it's kind of a situation mm. where it's going to take time to look and see who do they owe money to. Because a lot of this was undisclosed. A lot of this debt was yeah, not yeah, disclosed. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Um, so, we're kind of just waiting to see <laughs> more see, ripple effects yeah. happen. There's been- what, what happens? Yeah, there's been a number of property development companies that have gone into default, a number that are near default. Um, but it, it's still kind of early stages, I think. Um, uh, so, we'll, we'll just mm. have to- We'll kind of have to continue to watch this space and, and see how it develops. I would imagine it's hard to raise more money from kind of this. Uh, what, what, what did you describe it as? Shadow, shadow, creditors. shadow, shadow creditors. I would imagine it would be harder to raise more money from shadow creditors than through like big banks. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think um, so. Some of these, some of the loans that they got, these private loans from small businesses or local businesses, some of them had interest rates, uh, interest payments as high as uh, interest rates. Sorry, as high as seventy three percent. So oh, um, these are very these are finicky, wow. dodgy loans. These are not, Jeez. you know, this isn't <laughs> this isn't your average mortgage. Um, okay. This is desperate, you know, desperation money. Um, but yeah, yeah. So yeah. we'll just have to see. But yeah, you're right. If yeah, if if there was some sort of private or, or other company that that did have big big 
deals with Evergrande and then they're just not going to get their money. You can understand how this could quickly be like, oh, now these guys are in trouble. Now these guys are in trouble and that could spread. But yeah, that I, I don't know, but I would just hazard a guess that it wouldn't be all that much money just because I feel like it would be harder to raise substantial amounts of money. But then again, you know, it does it for some other bit, looking from the perspective of the other businesses, they sometimes they wouldn't have to loan all that much money to still be in trouble if they weren't paid back, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's very interesting. So, yeah, there you go. Evergrande in trouble. Looks like they're done. Yeah. And yeah, this, this is something that I, you won't be able to, I guess you can't really predict, oh, this this will cause this and that'll cause that. It's just literally, you're just going to have to wait yeah. <laughs> and just see what eventuates, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, kind of scary, isn't it? Mm. All right. Where do, where do you want to go from yeah. here? Should we- um, Let's just, I just wanted to, to point, I just wanted to, I did a little bit of digging on the James Webb telescope. I'll just mm. run through this very quickly. Um, very interesting. Aiming for launch on the 25th. So, this has been getting into the news uh, recently. So, this is the successor telescope to the Hubble. Um, so, the James Webb telescope captures, uh, or the Hubble telescope captures more visible light wavelengths, okay. um, whereas this one is going to capture more infrared wavelengths. Uh, but one thing that was interesting, kind of make this uh, circle back to something re- to do with investing and money and that sort of thing, um, this thing costs, is costing NASA $10 billion. <laughs> it was funny because there were people like watching it, watching it being lifted up into the air to be oh, like no. mounted on the rocket. <laughs> there would have been a lot of nervous people watching that happen um, because Zoe is, is also taking them like, like uh, I don't even know, decades to build this this flipping telescope. But uh, right. I was interested when I saw this, this is obviously very interesting and it's going to, to help further scientific research. But I was like, how do these things actually get funded? Because like $10 billion, <laughs> like I don't even know what NASA's budget is, but that's a lot of money. Mm. So, I actually had a look and it turns out, so the James Webb Space Telescope is expected to cost NASA $9.7 billion over 24 years. Of that amount, $8.8 billion was spent on spacecraft development between 2003 and 2021. So, this is not a cheap and dirty, <laughs> quick, put it together and send it up there kind of telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, $861 million is planned to support five years of operations. Uh, adjusted to inflation for $2,020, the lifetime cost to NASA will be approximately $10.8 billion, but that's only NASA's portion. The European Space Agency provided the the Ariane 5 launch vehicle and two of the four uh, science instruments for an estimated cost of 700 million euro. Uh, The Canadian Space Agency contributed sensors and scientific instrumentation, which cost approximately (laughs) 200 million Canadian dollars. Um, It's very interesting. I was kind of Reading more, so this one seems like it's very much funded by uh, by the space mm. agencies. Well, uh, um, luckily, uh, Elon Musk's payment of $11 billion is coming through, so- Exactly, that'll, that'll so they can just <laughs> shovel that right over to Elizabeth. Well, I, I mean, to the uh, to the to the satellite. Um, oops. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, the the Webb Telescope was not always planned to be a mega project. It was originally estimated to cost four point nine six billion and launch in twenty fourteen. But serious mismanagement and under resourcing during critical early planning phases caused the ambitious spacecraft to fall behind schedule. 
Um, so after NASA restructured the project to launch in 2018, the total cost increased $8.8 billion. In the intervening years, the program struggled to address serious technical problems, further delaying the launch to 2021. The final delay uh, added yet another billion dollars to the total cost. So this is just so interesting. And this is classic, right? This is something that's built by funding from the government versus, you know, you would never read something like this from SpaceX <laughs> or some, some private company where if it's delayed by 10 years, the company will cease to exist. Yeah. They will go bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So that is some serious it's- mismanagement. <laughs> yeah, it's just classic, isn't it? Anything to do, and Elon actually talked about this in 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 his podcast he just did um, that we were talking about earlier. It's like anything to do with the government is uh, is automatically inefficient just by the fact that the government is a monopoly, and therefore, yeah. you know, there is no pressure on them to succeed first time to come in on budget. There's no pressure to do that because they're a monopoly. That yeah. he, he, he describes government as, as the, uh, a business, as the, the, the biggest business and it has a monopoly. <laughs> yeah, and that's the right way so, to think about it. I mean, it basically, the yeah. government basically is a business, but that, yeah, can, is. that also has control over the rules that they play by. Like that's the, exactly. that's the right way to th- to think about it, and there's you know yep. necessary areas for them to be participating, but there's clearly parts of the economy where you know if you have extremely competitive environment with businesses competing for profits, then that is where great innovation comes from, and where where products yep. and services get cheaper and better for consumers. So, yeah, it is it is yep. interesting to to watch things like this. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, but interestingly, I wanted to look at, we were talking about all this, it's just got costs has gone up and timeframes have been extended. Um, is it actually expensive? That's that's the question that I had. And it says here, uh, in the same 2003 to 2026 period that NASA will spend $9.7 billion on web, uh, on the Webb telescope, the United States government will spend in total approximately $101 trillion. <laughs> the James Webb Space Telescope accounts for 0.0095% of all spending during this period, the equivalent of setting aside a single penny out of $100 to answer fundamental questions about our cosmos. Um, yeah, and then it finishes here that sci- most scientists believe this investment will be worth it. For comparison, the Hubble Space Telescope also suffered years of delays and billions of dollars in cost overruns, but it's arguably the most successful space science project of all time. As of 2021, the program has produced over 18,000 peer-reviewed publications that have been cited more than a million times in scientific literature. It literally revealed new perspectives on the cosmos and uh, is one of uh, one of a handful of scientific projects to be become a household name. Wow. Um, few, if any, people now wish that the Hubble had been cancelled during its troubled development period. Yeah. Interesting. I, I know nothing about this. So, is this a telescope that's in space? They launch it into space? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the Hubble is uh, is in space. The, these massive telescopes, they uh, get developed and then they get launched. This one is- uh, The Hubble is, I think- close enough to Earth that it can be uh, tinkered with and fixed if things break or go faulty. Uh, this one that's going up is going to be too far away from Earth. I think it's okay. still, it, it'll orbit Earth, but it's too far away. And then it sits in space and then they angle it and shoot at it and try and look at different parts of the galaxy. Wow. Very interesting. And many galaxies beyond ours. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, wow. But yeah, it's very interesting. So, yeah, that's kind of how this is getting funded. And and uh, I thought that was very relevant. It's coming up in the news at the moment. It's going to be launched at this this moment. Of course, launch windows can open and close, so it might be different. But they're aiming for a Christmas launch on the 25th. Oh, beautiful. Wow. Beautiful. Actually, that's, oh, isn't that I mean, just that's a heartwarming really, story? That means a bunch of people have to work on Christmas. Exactly. It's, it's the opposite of beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I feel sorry for those. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> anyway, Should we, uh, we'll, we'll try and squeeze in, squeeze in maybe one or two yeah. questions here at the end of this. Uh, end of this. Sorry, podcast. we are running over time here. Yeah, let's just do one or two. Yeah, let's, see. let's try and find something. Um, oh, here's a nice short question. Uh, just curious, what do de- what degrees did you study at university? Yeah, nothing to do with finance and economics. I can tell you that as, as it probably comes across in our podcast sometimes. Um, I studied physiotherapy. Um, so, I was a physio for three years before I switched and did YouTube full time. Uh, I did my YouTube channel for many years before that. But all of the uh, knowledge, uh, I guess that's, well, some, I guess I don't have a huge amount of knowledge, but the knowledge that I've gained in this kind of area is just uh, from my own interest. I guess I just got really interested in in making money and business and stock market investing and learning from people like Warren Buffett and learning that strategy and 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 Ben Graham and that that's that's just I found it really interesting. So uh, I just read a lot of books, I guess, and slowly you just build up a knowledge. And of course, you always learn a lot about things that you're interested in just by yourself. So. Um, hmm. That's that's kind of uh, that's kind of how I did it. Yeah. Although it does not having a formal background does catch me out sometimes because there are still things that uh, are probably pretty basic that come across. I'm like, oh, what, wait, what does that mean again? I have to go and look it up. <laughs> but I think sometimes finance and economics can be a little bit like that. There's it's like. Especially with like accounting and that sort of thing. It's like a whole new language sometimes. So Yeah, there's a lot of different components and you kind of end up just like looking up things on the on, and learning yeah. things as you go anyway. Yeah, exactly. But, um yeah, I studied commerce, uh majoring in finance. Um and I would have majored in finance, but I didn't finish. So I did two years out of the three year degree. And um yeah, I was running my business at the same time as as doing uni and um it kind of got to a point where I felt as though um, I really wanted to give running my business as best of a chance as possible. I I didn't want to have a situation where if I was doing, if I was kind of juggling multiple things and then it failed, have that kind of regret of, oh, what if, like, what what if I had just gone all in? Um, So, I would have, you know, rather had a situation where I dropped out of uni and I went all in on the business. And even then, if it failed, I think I would have felt better about it because I would have felt as though I gave it everything I could have possibly um, asked for. You can always go back if you need to. And I could have always gone back, right? So, um, yeah, I made that decision and um, in hindsight, it was a great decision. <laughs> so, Well, you haven't gone back to uni. So. No, no, I haven't. <laughs> that's the answer. Yeah, so, um, yes, that's that. And I think, yeah, I think what you said is right. I think, I mean, just being forced into learning like basic accounting is like was really, really valuable, um, I think. But, yeah. I mean, I would say that the vast majority of what I've learned in finance has been after I left university. So, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like you can, I feel like you can learn a lot now online, especially, I mean, just, I always give this example, but, um, if you want to learn accounting, I mean, just go through the Khan Academy, um, yeah, online. True. It's completely free. It's on YouTube and you, how good's Khan you Academy? Can learn, so good. Yeah, you can learn every, you, you can learn up to like third year university level accounting, um, on yeah. there. And the lectures are, you know, f- probably more engaging than than the ones you, you have at <laughs> university. So I agree. Yeah. 
So there's, there's really no excuse, I think. If you want to learn something, you don't. And I mean, of course, you know, if you want to be an accountant, you have to do the degree. <laughs> but uh, if you just want to learn accounting as like a foundation of your investing, um, then that's that's available to you. You don't have to go through the a, a full accounting course. You can literally do it yourself. And I mean, I, there's another, there's a few um, uh, American uh, university lecture lecturers who put all of their lectures for finance or investing or whatever it is valuation online, and um, you can just you can just literally basically do the class. Uh, besides yeah. being able to engage with the teachers and getting the pa- piece of paper at the end, you can do all of the learning. So, mm. um, yeah, that's uh, that's that's kind of my perspective on that. But yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, absolutely. No, there's so much, so much for free. Honestly, I don't know how universities are going to go in the future. I mean, if you if you want a job that requires a degree, then of course, I guess you have to go to uni. But yeah, at the end of the day, if if you just want to, like for us, we're starting a business. You don't actually need to to have a formal qualification. You just have to battle it out and learn how to start a business. But then it's just up to you yourself. You know, we just have to learn as much as we possibly can. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think my, my kind of personal opinion on this is uh, that I think for a very long time, especially, you know, a long time ago, 20, 30 years ago, having a degree gave you a unique advantage um, over, yeah. over other people when going for, and applying for jobs. And I think that's that's shifted significantly to where everyone is graduating with a very similar degree and it doesn't really give you an advantage. And mm. my view on that is that there will be I think maybe not as a majority, but at least for some people, they will do an analysis between the price you're paying for university and whether you can get um, experience for what you want to do in another way through just working, for example. Mm. Um, I think that will start to weigh into people's decisions rather than, oh, of course, go to university and get a degree. I think that will start to kind of, people will start to think a little bit more critically about yeah, that definitely. As, uh, as there's kind of limited jobs and a lot of people coming out with very, very similar degrees. Yeah, I think university is a classic case of diminishing returns now, but um, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's just yeah. I'm I'm on the same page as you. But anyway, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's what we studied at uni. <laughs> <laughs> just going to going to a rant uh, on uh, <laughs> yeah, on the system and universe. Oh, get all philosophical, oh, God. <laughs> and that's why I believe in God. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. All right. Anyway, guys, that, that we'll wrap things up. Uh, thanks very much. We're, we're going to, uh, and by the way, Merry Christmas, because I just looked and Merry this is Christmas. going to, this is going to come out on Christmas Day. Of course, we we record on the Thursday uh, beforehand, but um, yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. And hope you guys have a good uh, holiday period and have a good new year. Uh, we will be back next week because what we are going to do, because we are, <laughs> we're trying to get a week, week off. <laughs> So, we've got a stack of questions from you guys. So, we are just going to do a full Q&A or maybe not a full podcast, but we'll see how we go. We're we're going to do an episode and it's just going to be lots of Q&A questions. So, all the stuff that you guys have been been asking, we're going to hopefully cover in this uh, kind of special episode um, where we'll try and get a little bit of a break. um, But obviously, we still want want there to be some sort of content coming out. So, so look forward to that next week. Mm -hmm. But yeah... uh, Apart from that, happy, uh, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, everybody! Thanks, Hamish. Uh, what are you doing over Christmas? You, you doing anything? Um, nothing in particular. Just catching up with family. Um, just the usual yep. stuff. Pretty quiet. 
I'm looking forward to taking a week off. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You've you've earned it. We'll have a have a merry Christmas. Have a happy New Year, mate. You too. And uh, and uh, yeah, we'll catch you guys uh, in 2022. Wow, we see you then. See you guys. <laughs>